You're listening to the Gov Future podcast, highlighting discussions and insights around innovative technology impacting the public sector. Hear from experts working with and inside the government on ways that technology is shaping the future of the public sector. On this episode, we talk to Stuart Wagner, who is Chief Digital Transformation Officer at the U.S. Department of the Air Force. We discuss challenges in data sharing and access, especially as it relates to classified information and upclassing, some of the unique and innovative ways in which the Air Force is adopting AI and automation, zero trust and data architecture, insights into the future of technology adoption at the Air Force, and more in this lively and wide-ranging conversation. Stay tuned. Hello, and welcome to the Gov Future podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Mulch. And I'm your host, Ron Schmelzer, and we hope you've been enjoying the many episodes that we've been doing on with interviews with thought leaders across the broad scope of public sector. So, of course, yes, a lot of federal, U.S. federal folks is in particular and defense and civilian, but so much state as well and local and even a little bit of international government. So you can hear sort of the broad scope of how government organizations and public sectors are implementing and adopting transformative technology to really leverage this stuff to make public sector so much better and more effective for all of us. We are the public, right? So uh, we really hope you've been enjoying our conversations on these key topics uh, that are really hoping, focusing our listeners on what is happening with innovation and our GovFuture members learn the latest innovations and best practices to stay ahead of innovation in the public sector. Exactly. And so for our listeners that aren't familiar with the GovFuture community, it's the fastest growing community of government innovators. I know that many of our podcast listeners are also members, but if you are not yet, you can learn more at GovFuture.com. And we encourage you to check that out. You know, as Ron mentioned, the we really try and bring the entire community together. So from all different uh, levels of government, you know, federal, state, local, international, that really is important and everybody in the ecosystem. And so these podcasts are a great way to help, you know, facilitate that discussion. So for today's podcast, we're really excited to have with us Stuart Wagner, who is Chief Digital Transformation Officer at the Department of the Air Force, which consists of the U.S. Air Force and Space Force. So welcome, Stuart, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Kathleen, good to see you again. Thanks for having me. We're looking forward to today's discussion. So I'd like to kick it off by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background and your role at the Department of the Air Force. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Um, so I would say my background actually starts probably, my work background starts actually in the U.S. Army. Um, I was in officer candidate school um, and and had actually branched MI Detail Armor, which basically means it's going to be a military intelligence officer and then and then um uh, uh but first a armor officer in 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 basically a tour um and on an obstacle course there i broke three ribs in training um and i actually continued training while hurt um uh, ultimately uh, uh finding myself unsuccessful uh in the the final evaluation they call that one go short um and and as a consequence of that um as hurt um, and and ended up honorably discharging uh, as a consequence of my injuries. Um, became a computer scientist after that, which is a bit of a longer story. Um, and and ended up as a software developer at Microsoft, uh, where I was working extensively 
with telemetry data. Um, telemetry data is the automatic collection of data off of devices. Um, and frequently people may refer to this as, as log data, but I actually think it's a critical um, component to understanding the health of a system, the ability to drive artificial intelligence. This is all automatically collected data. And so I did that first on, on Windows devices, um, basically trying to understand the health of every Windows device in the world. And so we were writing code to understand all of the data that was coming in from a billion plus devices. Uh, and then uh, I thought I was going to do something different. Uh, I went to Azure. I ended up basically doing the same thing. Um, but but it was instead of doing it for understanding the health of systems, think of reliability, performance, power usage, things like that. We were instead trying to, to make sense of customer growth uh, and revenue drivers and, and using telemetry data to understand how we can increase the growth of Azure usage. Um, in about 2019, 2018, 2019, career transition into the DOD started with seeing a career posting from, at the time, the chief data officer for the Office of the Secretary of Defense, Michael Conlon, who, who, who basically wrote an article that said, our biggest challenge is talent uh, and engineering talent, in particular, data science talent. And I thought I had some of the skills that, that, that might be able to, to help with what his, what his call, what his request was. And so I reached out, and a few months later, I ended up um, at the Office of the Secretary of Defense as a data scientist and advisor um, to the chief data officer. And there, there were basically like two, two critical things I worked on. The first is I started a project called Game Changer, which is a policy search engine for the Department of Defense. Um, and, and there are a number of things we did that were innovative there, including leveraging open source software out of things you may have heard of now called Hugging Face, uh, and, and, and basically um, providing a semantic search capability undergirded with open source technologies uh, and visualizing a reference graph of policy in a way that had never been done before at the Department of Defense. Um, this, this built up basically an opportunity for, for the second thing I helped with, which was running development and engineering for an enterprise platform called Advana. Um, and Advana is basically an enterprise data platform to make sense of what was at the time primarily financial data, but now largely all enterprise data at the Department of Defense. And so um, in those in those two roles are my two hats, um, I was able to kind of drive, uh, start to drive the use of artificial intelligence, telemetry data at the Department of Defense, which was really cool. Um, ended up um, applying for and being selected for my current role, uh, which is in the U.S. Air Force, where I where I basically uh, am the Chief Digital Transformation Officer for the Department of the Air Force. And here, my responsibility is largely to turn bits into action um, to to drive digital transformation. Which what does that mean? I, I I view that as meaning basically digital means bits, so we're collecting bits and leveraging bits to then transform or change how we operate with data. And I do that in a in an individual contributor role, basically an industry role where I have come with experience from industry and inform senior leaders on how to more effectively uh, basically leverage leverage data digital um, to, 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 to perform our primary, primary mission. Does that answer your question? That's great. And I think that's a really good background for a lot of folks. And everybody's story, everybody's arc is different how they got here. But it's it's kind of interesting when you hear all these stories, people kind of realize like, hey, you know, data is important, systems are important, enterprise systems are important, IT systems. We can't get anything accomplished in the modern day and age 
without modern approaches to data and systems. So everything's interconnected. So even going back to the telemetry stuff, which seems like might have might have been a couple lifetimes ago, that's all actually really part of the modern infrastructure, because at the end of the day, we're trying to connect these systems that may have been disconnected and gain the intelligence from them so that we can do more things and, well, not operate blindly. So that kind of brings us into an interesting uh, place, because at for some of our listeners know that in addition to, of course, our podcasts and the great content and stuff we have on our GovFuture site and our membership, we do have in-person events as well. And we have our GovFuture Forum event, which is uh, run in D.C. We actually have an online version but we have the DC version, which is run in person at George Mason University uh, in their Arlington campus the third Thursday of every month. And at our June 2023 GovFuture Forum, uh, Stuart and crew were really uh, there to demo Battering Ram, something called Battering Ram, uh, which is not necessarily something you might think of when you think of uh, the Department of Air Force. <laughs> you think of that as maybe one of the other departments. So may- maybe for those folks who um, weren't able to attend, and I do want to mention that we always do record uh, our forum events. So hopefully folks who are listening to this can go back and watch the recording for that. But uh, for those of you who are listening, maybe provide a little overview of what Battering Ram is. And uh, maybe a little bit of the genesis behind it. What was it created for and kind of what's its mission? Sure. Well, you brought up telemetry and 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 um, or, or maybe I brought it up and you mentioned it. But but I, I, I don't think it's just um, something that's used to integrate. I think it's the linchpin in actually creating JADC2 or developing JADC2, join all domain command and control. It is the linchpin to to Internet of Things, the ability to basically communicate with other systems and leverage other systems requires the ability to understand the state of a system. And so what I realized actually very early at DOD, um, before actually starting uh, this game changer effort, was was the, the, the need to be able to combine data. And there's this concept, um, well, well, I'll, I'll start with with how I learned about this concept, and then I'm going to go into it. So, the the in my second week at the Department of Defense, I requested to join two data sets together for a use case that I was increasingly learning about in my role that I had a task to go do, and um, I went um, and and basically asked uh, the head of Advana, I'd like to join these two data set these data sets. Um, how do I do that? He said, you can't do that. Um, and, and, and I said, and I said, why not? He goes, you could talk to security about it, but, but basically um, we, we we're, we're, you know, we're, we're afraid of what you would learn, what you would learn from joining those two data sets together. And, 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 and I went and talked to the security officer and learned more about it. And, and what I began to realize was that uh, number one, we are afraid to learn from our data because of the risk of it upclassing. Basically, by aggregating or compiling data together, it is possible to learn new things, and those new things could be more classified. This is something that had never occurred to me before joining the Department of Defense. This is an unobvious problem. Um, and so I said, well, well, how does this, how is this determined? Right. And the security officer said to me, Well, it's it's kind of like porn. You know it when you see it. And 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 I realized at that moment. That, that, that I was on to a pretty serious problem. Uh, and the problem was uh, an arbitrary determination of whether or not you can combine data together. And that 
And I realized quite quickly that in order to get to like the artificial intelligence capabilities that are being described, this is like in the backdrop of GIC2 being being announced and discussed. And like in, in those meetings, I started to realize that basically we're never going to be able to combine critical weapon system data together if, if we're not able to rapidly determine the classification of data. Um, and so and so that is actually what battering ram is focused on. Um, I'm still working on problems I discovered in week two uh, at the Department of Defense. And 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 um, basically what well, number one, what is a battering ram? So so battering ram, a, a battering ram is is kind of a a um, um, approximate. It was actually invented, I think, um, before the year zero BC, but is, was used all the way up to around the fifteen fifteen um, uh, hundreds. Um, a battering ram was was designed to break down um, enforced basically fortresses. Um, like the walls of a fortress to 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 actually perform to to provide significant pressure in a weak area of a castle, and ultimately it produced this small hole that enabled basically those seeking to enter that castle and 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 obtain its resources break through, right? And what we realized as we were starting to work on this problem is we were building a battering ram on ourselves. Um, the captures that the castles represent the silos of data that exist across the Department of Defense and the inability to basically access those data because we don't know we're not able to rapidly um, and easily deterministically determine the classification of data. Um, and so the way this works is basically the policy that's supposed to exist for security classification that's unobvious. Um, is located in something called a security classification guide. There are thousands of these across the Department of Defense um, at the unclass and secret level. Once you go up higher classifications, I don't think we disclose that, but there's a lot more. Each of these is hundreds of pages long, written sort of in a vacuum, disconnected from other security classification guides, disconnected from other programs in the Air Force. And... Um, they're supposed to describe what happens to the data when you combine it together. This is the critical problem. They don't. Um, it's impossible to do this. It would be actually an N squared problem. You would have to compare every piece of information that could exist in the DOD with every other one. And then actually it gets worse. It, technically it would be N factorial, but just for two pieces of data, it's N squared. Um, and, 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 so, and so the challenge is, is how do you make sense of all this policy to produce deterministic classification. And so the way we've addressed this is basically we ingest this data, we view the policy as data, we ingest it, produce a knowledge graph for it, and then ultimately allow people to automatically query and discover contradictions in the policy. Once we can produce non-contradictory policy, our intention is to actually provide for deterministic, like provide a road, maybe we won't, turn this on today uh, or tomorrow, but provide a pathway to deterministically automate classification policy decisions so that when a data scientist says, I want to join this data set with this data set, they know what the classification is and what is required to do so. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, that does. That's, yeah. you know, really interesting too. I mean, 
what I'm taking from this is everything comes down to the data, right? No matter how advanced we want to get, it really always does start with the data, which is what we always say. We talk a lot about the DIKUW pyramid. So that starts with data. And then it's, you know, once you have that data, DI information, K knowledge, U understanding, then W wisdom. And so uh, we talk about this in many different contexts, really in uh, with artificial intelligence is how we mainly talk about it. So it's like, where are we in this? And right now we're at the the K, the knowledge. Uh, we need to get to that understanding. And that's really what machine reasoning is. And we're not there yet. And it sounds like that's something that's needed uh, here to help with, you know, battering RAM and figuring out, okay, if we are combining these two data sets together, what's that going to do? Uh, what's the under, you know, we need that understanding of figuring out where things are going to go next. So uh, I, we know that's very hard. That's a problem that people are continuing to try to solve. But uh, that segues into my next question, which is, uh, you know, if we're talking about data, we understand that that's the foundation upon which all things are built. You need it for uh, definitely machine learning and artificial intelligence. So what are some of the unique and innovative ways that you're able to share with our audience in which the Air Force is adopting AI and automation as well? So, so I would say, um, here's what I would start with. I think that if you look across the Air Force, and in my experience as well at the Office of the Secretary of Defense, we've run these hackathon events, which I think I've discussed with you before, where we're actually seeing, um, we're, get, we're starting to gather some insight into actually other services as well, like the Navy and the Army. And we, we tend to find simil- a lot of similarities um, between the services. That if you're wondering where adoption for AI and automation are taking place, you should start at the actually least classified levels. And this is counterintuitive because oftentimes that data, you would think that data would be the least critical, um, at least the least directly connected to the primary mission of the Department of Defense and Department of the Air Force. Um, We see that at the unclass level because it's the easiest to work with, right? Um, and And so where I would give credit for the most unique and innovative ways that we're seeing a kind of AI and automation being adopted, you see that in the platforms that are using less classified data, namely unclass and then secret in many cases. But but for, for kind of top secret, I'd say the Department of Defense struggles to adopt AI and automation at that level. We see that more in the intelligence community where they more or less exclusively work at that level. Also, with, um, and I can't talk too much about this, but if you look at kind of like our special access programs, if you look at like the Air Force, almost all the primary weapon systems you've heard of are, 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 are acknowledged um, special access programs. Those data remain kind of siloed um, and stuck in, in highly privileged environments where many engineers don't have access to the data. It's kind of broadly, if you ask, where are we adopting AI and automation? It's in the place where you can access the data. And the place where you can access the data today is secret and unclass. What are some kind of unique or innovative ways we're seeing? Well, so I personally like to lean towards those approaches that break through basically bureaucratic challenges, right? Um, Where where they're more scalable than to a specific use case. There are many use cases where people have, have tried to train a model or employ a model um, on data and 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 I can talk to those, but but the thing where where I I really enjoy seeing 
innovation and where I like to get involved is where somebody says, hey, there's a problem that's affecting a large community of people. Um, and, 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 and what can we do to kind of solve that? So um, let's see. So a few areas we see that on is on um, authorities to operate. We see that on the ability, like, um, um, you know, uh, the, the ability to leverage classified data. Um, I see that in, you know, concepts like bring your own device, right? Where, where uh, we're able to use government infra on personal devices, right? Um, I see that on user experience monitoring. Um, Colt Whittle has been working on that. And, and I'm excited to see kind of the use of AI and automation there. But the truth is, is we're still figuring out the data story. So when I say data story, I mean the ability to, to basically, where does the bit start and how does it become leverageable? And I think until you kind of have, um, until there's consistency in the Air Force, in the ability to know where much or all of our bits are located, how to get them to a specific destination, and then how to get tools into that destination, frequently open source tools, new tools that, that may not have yet been ATO'd, right? Until we kind of nail that developer experience, I don't see us at a kind of um, uh, at a whole effectively adopting AI and automation. And I still, to this day, don't see kind of my experiences at Microsoft. I don't have the same developer experience I had now five years ago, six years ago at Microsoft. I don't see that experience at the DoD yet. And so until we kind of get there, um, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical of, of our ability to effectively um, promote and adopt AI and automation effectively. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And it's it's a challenge uh, for a lot of organizations, especially organizations that may have, for good reasons, uh, need to be more risk averse, have greater degrees of privacy and security. You may think that uh, this is only applies to defense, but actually uh, back in the day when we were doing our AI Today podcast episodes, we were interviewing folks in the healthcare industry. Surprisingly, they had the very same issues because they are they have these strict regulations around patient privacy and they cannot combine data either uh they can they can barely a lot of these hospitals there's a new regulation law that's been passed a couple of years ago that said they have to to actually publish pricing data of of like you know surgeries and things like that and they're actually unable to do that <laughs> and you might think oh my goodness this is like a a unique problem in, in organizations and for across the board, every single every single public health institution or private health or insurance company or hospital or care facility, they all had the same problem. And it turns out that this is not a technology problem. I don't know if I want to introduce something new here. And and by background, uh, I'm I'm really more of an architect, a data architect, enterprise architect. And a lot of these problems are data architecture problems, which is how do you design systems? How do you put it put governance and control structures into place? Standardization, normalization, formalization, you know, all these things that we like. So that way we could say, okay, we may be working on two different things, but let's, we need, when there's points of contact, this is not about your tool versus my tool. We may be using the same tool. Uh, but it's more about how do I how how do I get these things to to cooperate? So maybe maybe by way of insertion of a question here, um, you know, how have you been looking at sort of these non-technology uh, things, process, architecture, 
uh, and maybe what are you borrowing even or looking at from outside, you know, uh, from industry or from other sources that that may inform uh, some of the work you're doing? Yeah. Um, so before I, the way I think about this is risk and you use the word risk averse and I'm going to actually disagree. Uh, I think, I think a lot of people point to the way the DOD operates and they may say we're a risk averse, uh, organization. Um, and I, I, it's an odd, it's always struck me as quite odd to say that a war fighting organization is risk averse, right? I, 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 I that, that's quite a weird thing to say, right? We we send people to war, right? We may be we may be um, we 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 may be unfortunately um, an organization that loses more employees, you know, due to the nature of the mission than any other organization. And 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 people say we're risk averse. It's really actually a weird thing to it's 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 a really weird conclusion. Um, I don't view us that way. I don't think we're risk averse. In fact, I think we've failed to assess risk effectively is, is what that common actually means. What are, what are the risks that exist within the DOD? The risks, you described some of them, they're often bureaucratic risks, which is why this term gets used, right? Ethics, privacy, security. Those are all risks. Well, what's our what's actually our largest risk? Our risk is losing, right? Is losing to an adversary. And I think we've failed to capture the relationship between ethics, privacy, security, sometimes an inverse relationship or inverse correlation between uh, uh, assessing and preparing for those risks and assessing and preparing to win war, right? Um, and 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 so and so uh, if there's one thing I've taken from industry, it's been opportunity cost, which is ultimately the the cost of taking one decision, you know, instead of another. And indecision is a decision. Inaction is a decision. When I think about things like security, and we go, oh, we can't push new software because it hasn't been checked for a virus or because it has a potential vulnerability. That is a risk, sure. Another risk is we just don't deploy AI capabilities because we can't get software out. That's a serious risk too. And then our capabilities are worse and we lose people. What's worse? I don't know. It depends on, it depends on the risk um, that you view and the capability gap that you view with that potential adversary. Um, this exists for ethics and privacy as well. These are all um, um, these are all you know basically topics that produce drag to capability deployment, right? And so I like to work at the intersection of reducing that drag while still providing equal or better protections for those bureaucratic risks. Um, how do you address them? So I've been using very specific language that has been honed over some experiences with battering ram, because battering ram is somewhat of a scary topic. Automatic classification, well, what if it makes a mistake? Okay, well, maybe we don't do automatic first. In fact, we don't do automatic first. Maybe we just increasingly automate classification determinations. Perhaps we can't automate ethics, 
but we can increasingly automate parts of the assessment of ethics or increasingly automate privacy or security. I'll give you an ethics example, by the way, that I've discovered in the DOD that a lot of people don't think. So a lot of people think about ethics in terms of uh, right now, it's very popular to discuss. In fact, um, there's 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 a bunch of signatories to it. You know, what happens if 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 um, what happens if the robots kind of take over? Right. And 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 um, and at least for a while, I still believed that that the risk was that the robots, if they took over, they would just be too stupid. I'm not I don't I don't subscribe to the belief yet. Um, and, and, and I've been an NLP person for, for quite some time and, and looked at neural networks and things like that. And, and large work, we were, we were probably the, one of the first, if not the first in the DOD to work with large language models through hugging face, you know, something like four years ago before anybody knew what that was. Um, you know, I, 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 the, the, the ethics case, I actually think about that, that that's war fighting oriented that I think has been underserved in the DOD is is ultimately go no go operation so there is a legal there is a legal review that takes place when you go or no go an operation and and we're seeing you know uh without without getting any any more specific we're seeing in cases both with conventional forces and specifically special forces where the go no go decision the time it takes to do the legal review and ethical review to go or no go exceeds the time to actually be able to to execute that mission so the window of opportunity closes um i'm not saying we're making great decisions when we go you know within the operation i'm not making a comment on that right now but but if we're losing the window of opportunity that is a risk right that 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 an adversary you know increases capability or or something bad happens to one of us or to our foreign partners or allies um how can we increase the speed of an ethical decision then? So our ability to go or no go an operation, if we cannot execute faster than our adversaries execute, we will be at a competitive disadvantage. So ethics ethics applies to like basically the employment of our capabilities. And we see this across across bureaucratic systems that create that drag. Sorry, I didn't hopefully I didn't talk too much or go too long. No, that, no, that's perfect. And I think people people are are uh, both concerned about many of these ethical issues because obviously there's potential lethality and not only for the people that may be on the end of the pointy stick, but like maybe on the other side, you know, when you're making when you have systems that make decisions about where people should be deployed or where systems should be or even maybe things that may be really innocuous that have to do with supply chain or logistics and you're like well, I mean the more the more that we put faith into systems the more we have to have confidence in those systems and the more that small things can have big impacts and that's what I but I think a lot of people are generally concerned about and I I really do like how how you're talking about uh, the risk averse factor, not maybe, maybe, maybe duty is the opposite. Maybe, maybe it's risk inclined or whatever the op- opposite term is. I think the reason why people usually mention is more in the context of like the startup personality, which is this fail fast and fail often. And a feature is here one day and gone tomorrow. And 
<laughs> surprise right that that that's a little more loosey-goosey and and i think you wouldn't necessarily want that kind of you know build every five minutes you know deploy every two hours you know whatever it is i, I mean or maybe 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 you are moving towards it depends, it depends on the environment yeah. it depends on the situation but we we saw we saw all sorts of innovations during war taking place in the context of war People will try new things when they're out of options, right? So it all depends on the context that we're in. Yeah. And I also like how you brought up the idea, you know, of uh, automation versus augmented, maybe just helping with assisting and then autonomous. Sometimes people use them interchangeably and they're really not. You know, if you're going to do something autonomously that's removing the human from the loop and it better be really accurate and have been tested a lot. But, you know, automation is just kind of repeating a task. And then augmentation is helping the human do their job better. So I always look at it in that kind of spectrum, you know, and and how can we be moving up so that we go from that automation where we're not doing the same thing over and over again to uh, autonomous. Um, And so I, I like kind of how you brought that up. This has been such a wonderful podcast. I know we could go on forever, but our listeners do have the opportunity to check out the June Gov Future Forum event that we have online so they can see firsthand what Battering Ram is all about. Um, and with that, though, before we do wrap up the podcast, we always ask one final question, and I want to, uh, you know, I love asking this question because we always get such different and varied responses because people bring in their own unique backgrounds and skill sets and ideas. So what do you see or hope to see as the future of technology and innovation in the government? I would like to see us increasingly incentivize government employees working on innovation um, and who deliver innovative capabilities. I think we have not yet effectively aligned those incentives such that government employees take risks. So this is where risk averseness does exist, right? Um, where, where employees determine that there needs to be change. In pursuing change in the government, um, there are all sorts of personal risks they accept when doing that. And so if they do that, number one, we need to protect those employees if they fail or if they're unsuccessful, oftentimes unrelated to their own effort. Um, And number two, if they're successful, we really need to incentivize. Um, We need to accelerate their career. We need to accelerate the outcomes um, from their work. And and, and I think if we do that, you'll you'll see all sorts of, of increases in, in, in both interest and production of innovation and new concepts and new ways to kind of address the bureaucratic drag that we've been talking about at the DoD in order to, to, to employ capability and produce capability and protect, you know, the United States for partners and allies. Um, so, so from a technology perspective, what, is it, what does that mean? It's, it's, it's aligning our technical systems with those incentives, right? Um, and 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 I don't think I don't think we're close yet on doing that. Yeah, that's really powerful. Well, as mentioned, as a as an enterprise architect at heart, 
uh, I, I, hey, people might rediscover the Zachman framework, <laughs> these approaches to designing systems that people might have thought of, oh, man, that's like from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I'm like, hey, but that's when we were building some pretty big systems that we may still even depend on to these day, to this day. So uh, I, this has been fantastic. Uh, as mentioned, you know, we are we are so thrilled to have you also demonstrating this technology and what you're talking about at our uh, June uh, 2023 Gov Future Forum event in D.C. and a panel as well. So, uh, you know, really, this is sort of beginning of a longer conversation, and we we hope to keep you engaged with our Gov Future Forum audience because you have a lot of awesome things to share. And as being in charge of digital transformation. This is a journey, <laughs> not, a, not a destination. So thank you so much for sharing all your great insights uh, with our audience. Thanks, Kathleen. Thanks, Ron. Have a good morning. Yeah, thank you. This was such a wonderful podcast. And we've got great resources if you're looking to get more insight and details on the range of technology that we've discussed in this podcast and other topics. Check out our resources, books, courses, checklists, explainer videos, webinars, and more at govfuture.com slash resources, tailored just for our GovFuture listeners. Also, become a GovFuture member to take advantage of all that the community has to offer, including access to a diverse network of government innovators, opportunities to collaborate with government agencies, exclusive access to events and resources, and a platform to have a voice in helping shape the future of government innovation. To sign up, go to govfuture.com slash join. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. To view this episode's show notes, find additional episodes, subscribe to this podcast, and join the fastest growing community of government innovators, go to govfuture.com slash podcast. This sound recording and its contents are copyright GovFuture, all rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening to the GovFuture podcast and catch you at the next episode.